Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development, with your host, Janice Palaganis, who is the Associate Professor of Health Professions Education and the Associate Director of the PhD Program in Health Professions Education, along with Peter Kahn, the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Welcome to What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. You're here with Janice Pelaganis. And this is Peter Kahn. Greetings, Janice. How are you doing, Peter? I'm good. You were saying that your children are out of online learning and back to in-person learning? They are in They are in school full-time now, and I really miss them, and I am the only person in the world that is sad that the world is going back to normal. But have you gained any insight into online learning that you may be facilitating based on your children's experience? Absolutely. Well, quite a few, actually. So a few of our students, uh, our PhD students, are studying engagement in online learning. So we're doing a lot of research. And it just happened to be my area of passion with distance simulation and online learning conversations. And so I keep bringing these students in. And I feel like I just more than ever in my life do I have so many research projects going on at one time. And it's fantastic. Just I am absolutely in love with my job because of that reason. So thank you, Peter, for bringing me on board. (laughs) Of course. And I think the, the research topic fits well with our guests today. So I am so excited to introduce you and Sue Park, who is like my go-to person for some of the distance simulation research that we've been doing, because he just knows so much about research. So let me just introduce you and Sue Park, who is our Director of Health Professions Education Research at Massachusetts General Hospital. And Yunsu comes from an amazing, impressive background. He completed three-year elected term as vice president of the American Educational Research Association called ERA. Am I saying that right, Yunsu? ERA? ERA or AERA? Okay. In in April of 2021, so we finished that, and he also completed his role as elected chair research in medical education, which is RIME. Now, is that RIME or is that RIME? That one is RIME. (laughs) (laughs) At the double AMC, I do know that, the Association of American Medical Colleges in November 2020, I would say from a personal perspective, I've learned so much from me and Sue in terms of statistical analysis, uh, especially with the work we've been doing in our distance simulation survey. So Yoon Su, thank you so much for being here. I cannot wait to pick your brain. Well, thank you so much, uh, Peter and Janice, for the very warm uh, uh, introduction. And also welcome to our listeners as well. I very much look forward to sharing my thoughts as well as this conversation with my colleagues. Uh, I wanted to ask the origin story, if I Good. <laughs> because in, in speaking to a lot of our, our colleagues through this format, we've learned that they often got trained in one area and then came to medical education later as a form of application. And I noticed your undergraduate degree was in mathematics and then graduate level statistics. Did you always have the health professions education target in mind or is that something that you came across later? That's a great question. And I think maybe it resonates with many of us, at least some of the the people that I know. So I I trained to be a statistician and 
you know, toward my graduate program, one of the topics that I was interested in was counter-curator effects. So that was what, what my dissertation was about. And after I graduated, I worked for a testing organization called the Educational Testing Service. They make things like SATs, GREs, and things like that. But while working there, while doing research on radar effects, uh, I came across the, this field of health professions education where assessors have a larger role than, than in general education because when you're training health professionals, particularly in assessment, you know, it's, it's hard to assess trainees just with written tests. So you need to have higher orders of assessments that typically include assessors, whether it's through observations and whatnot. And so that kind of, so naturally led uh, my interest into health professions education and to formally land a job, actually, that's a, an interesting story. Uh, many of us go to conferences and at a conference, I was sitting, this was at AERA, at a Starbucks, there was a very nice senior person there. So we just had a very casual conversation. She happened to be the chair of uh, medical education at the University of Illinois. They were recruiting a new measurement scientist. And so that's how I've formally entered the field of uh, health professions education, uh, which is, is how I've now become my passion. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so hold up. So you just met someone randomly at Starbucks? Well, that was a very short. Uh, that was a very short story. But basically, I was in Starbucks, and I was, uh, you know, having this very nice conversation with this person about educational research. And they were talking about health professions, educational research. They were talking about physicians being trained, nurses being trained, and it was a new field that I, I never really knew into. And and I found out later that she was a very senior and established person. She, she seemed very um, down to earth when I was just talking to her on Starbucks. And speaking with her led to meeting other people who are very well established in the health professions education. And they're recruiting somebody uh, in that department. So I gradually became interested. And after a course of a year, decided to move and formally make it a uh, position. Love that. I mean, I just, just the random, it, it's it's just... It shows the power of dialogue and the power of words of just kind of talking about what interests you. You could change people's lives just from a, just a random meeting anywhere. So I, I just, that's very inspirational to me. And Sue, thank you. Have you shifted all of your academic interests towards health professions education, or do you still retain some of the earlier topics that interest you when you started out in the field? Right. And that's that's a great question, because I think a lot of us in this field struggle to balance uh, both areas. So, for example, in my field, I'm, I'm trained as a statistician. So many of my colleagues from graduate school who are also active in academia and, and, and practice still publish and, and are active in, in statistics and measurement fields. I'm now active in health professions education. So how do I balance you know, scholarship in in basic statistics and measurement and also in health professions education research? How do I bridge the two? And so that's been always a constant struggle in my mind because the two fields don't necessarily talk to each other. We think they do, but they don't really, not, not necessarily. It's, it's a, the, the frameworks are different. And the health professions education field has been quite advanced in, in our field in itself that, you know, the way we do data analysis, the way we typically think about frameworks, think about even validity uh, is, is now quite different. So to answer your question, Peter, I still try to do research in both areas because I want to tell my friends that I still have my street credibility when I go to uh, present at my uh, my other conferences. 
But my ultimate goal is to be able to bridge the two fields, to be able to you know, take advances from health professions, education, research, and to, to show to my colleagues in, in the statistics and measure world that you know, there are these exciting applications with methodological advances that you can do. Vice versa as well, exciting cutting edge stuff from measurement that we can bring into health professions. And the other thing I'd, I'd also like to share is that a lot of us, you know, when we are, and, and I'm just talking about like education research or psychology, um, sociology, we'd be taking frameworks from that originate from these fields. For example, there could be a very important theory from sociology, we borrow it and try to use it within health professions, education research. What I'm noticing nowadays is that our field has now grown so much that there are some unique theories that are being born within our field. And when I read the journals in sociology, they're citing us. So we're no longer <laughs> importing, we're actually exporting our frameworks. And this, this is a very nice kind of a osmosis type thing that's happening of both, both directions. And I think that's where people who are, you know, who may not necessarily have PhDs in health professions and education can sort of help narrow that gap or help advance both, both fields. Let me state a supposition, tell me this is true, that the many of the people you work with have taken the opposite journey as you, that is they started in health professions, clinical practice or education and are moving into measurement as a way of determining outcomes or validity. And you of course started on the measurement side and then started to apply that in health professions. So how do you meet those people who may be fearful, intimidated by the, the quantitative side of things? No, absolutely. And I think it kind of works both ways, it's slightly different perspectives of course, but and I do see the differences in perspectives uh, if you're trained in one discipline versus another. I mean, and the thing that I, I would emphasize again is that if you do have your doctorate in, in health professions education, you already now have this very interdisciplinary lens. You're trained to see all of these very wonderful spectrum of things that someone like me who, when I originated my training, only saw something that's very focused. And so what I tell my colleagues who are trained in, specifically in this field is you now have this very opportunistic view of, of the wider lens. And so that kind of perspective is so unique and so special that the innovations that you will bring in also to measurement, although the maybe the technical aspects might be new, I mean, they, they could always learn that, but that perspective and that originality is so rare. So I think there are many benefits from trainees who are currently pursuing PhD programs. Very interesting, because I feel like uh, for our PhD students, it's it's the reverse. It's you know, them really understanding the medical or the health professions part and trying to understand this breadth of knowledge and realizing it's a whole new land and not being intimidated by it. You know, as you're saying, Peter, I guess my question is, I love this idea. I'm always, you know, I think all of us being part of a school that's focused on interprofessional education, marrying different silos is, is probably our ongoing theme. And I, I love your thought of bringing together health professions education and stati statistics, if I, if I have that right. Are you thinking those two schools of thought, bringing those together? And I guess what I'm interested in, what is in that, that middle sandbox, if you will? Like what, where do you see the things that we could do to bring both fields together? Yes, I think there are several things. I think one of the challenges that I think I have when I, you know, first entered health professions education research is I, when I, you know, try to publish, borrow some exciting ideas that are very 
recent, very cutting edge from measurement science applied to you know um, nursing training or dentist training or, or physician training. It's it's really hard to get some of that work published because the the understanding of the context and also to to demonstrate its importance was not very straightforward. And you, you need a group of people who understands and appreciates those ideas. I think that's the case whenever you have a new idea. And so when we have more and more people who are well-versed in both disciplines, you begin to have a community of people who appreciate the ideas and are able to advance that important thought. And so I think, yes, beautiful ideas are great, but it's it's better if you have a group of colleagues work together and having people from have understanding in both fields, getting more people who understand both fields, help us bridge the gap uh, between these two fields uh, in a much more meaningful manner. And can I ask on that, this is self-serving, uh, but the, the idea of getting both sides to understand each other, I work with faculty who don't see themselves as health professions, education researchers, but they engage in health professions, education, and occasionally they, they want to measure the outcome of an intervention. And often what they do is a pre-test and post-test sort of self-reported satisfaction scale. And I try to explain why, in, in my opinion, that that's not sufficiently robust. And often I believe journals would say the same. So what's your, what should I be saying to these faculty who say, why isn't this good enough? Or how could I make this more rigorous? So the heart of the, the many problems that, well, not problems, the, the issues, I would say that we have when, particularly like in the editorial board meetings, <laughs> we have our usual meetings of, you know, what's, what's significant, what's important, what's cutting edge, because the importance of certain things, uh, even, even demonstrating a change in self-reported status might be, you know, so important for, for certain constructs. Whereas for some others, the, the, the field has moved on so further that, you know, just demonstrating changes in self-perceptions is, is no longer important. So identifying where they are in that journey of that spectrum of outcomes is, is so important. So two things. One, I think where, because we are such an interdisciplinary field, I think that's where the, the beauty and also the issue kind of steps in. Because we're so interdisciplinary, we have people coming in from not only different clinical specialties, but from different backgrounds, different fields, scientists, and, and, and all sorts. So the, the judging whether something is substantively important or not becomes very complicated, I think. And then number two, the question that I've always struggled is, how do you evaluate rigor, methodological rigor? in this very interdisciplinary field. Because if you talk to a statistician, they would want X, Y, Z things in, in a certain reporting standard. If you talk to somebody in a different field, so everything is, is very different. And so I think as the field becomes much more advanced and we already have a good degree of, you know, how we articulate rigor in the health professions education research, I think, but as things become much more complicated, mixed methods research, for example, or much more advanced types of qualitative research or quantitative research, that dialogue of how do we evaluate rigorous methodology becomes very important and will be a continued discussion, I think, moving forward as well. So that's my long answer to your short question, <laughs> but very important question, I think. You know, you recently, I came to know you when you joined Mass General Hospital, in talking about these conversations that you're having in advancing the field, what differences have you noticed from being based in a university department of educational research to now in a academic health center, part of a you know, large integrated system with education research and clinical practice? How has that changed the way you look at these questions? Yes. And, and that's actually something that I've noticed. I didn't expect it to be as different, but it's a, it's a good amount of difference because 
in a in a more departmental or in a university structure, you're more in that sort of theoretical space, I would say. But being uh, directly placed within the hospital, you're dealing and interacting with clinical educators who are teaching and and being mentored all the time. And so the the research that you're doing actually has an impact right where you're working. And so I think that's where I, I, f- I feel the, the benefits of your work gets introduced and translated in real time. Also at the IHP, I see that, you know, there are, you know, it's such an interprofessional group of uh, people. And so the, the perspectives that people share, I started teaching a course last week and the different perspectives that are available is, is I think, so exciting and something that I haven't experienced in my previous uh, role. You talk about this community here, and I wonder about how do you shape a culture of educational research in a place that where people come from different backgrounds and different perspectives and levels of comfort with this type of rigorous um, scholarship? Yes, and I think that gets to what I think I'm, I'm excited about most more recently, which is after I completed my uh, some of my leadership roles that I've held, one thing that I've noticed is you know the the more significant need for building capacity and building a more diverse pool of colleagues in the field. You know, in, in the major journals that we have, just like any other discipline too, but we see the same senior people or the same types of topics or, or not all the time, but but there's there's a trend that I've I've seen. And what I felt is really needed is the need to, you know, bring in the next generation of educational scholars to have more diverse people from different specialties join. And I think that type of capacity building, I think, is so essential as we move forward in advancing the the field and and to have more um, breath in in, in our conversations and in scholarship. I think what I'm finding fascinating about your story, Yansu, is your evolution into, into what you're discovering today it is actually it follows a lot of the where we're trying to push research to go. So, for example, you know we we talked about pre and post, and you know knowledge based, skills based research, assessment, that sort of thing. And we have been, you know, I think researchers all over health professions, education has been pushing and calling for researchers to start looking at translational research to apply it and to see if the findings actually fit what's in the real world. And it seems like your job trajectory has done that too. It's like now you're, you've gone from, you know, the university setting to now you're in this hospital setting where you're looking more at application of some of the methods that you know very well and how it applies in diverse settings like nursing and all the different professions and you're kind of living this translational level of research, which I think is really cool. And also probably discovering a ton of ways to educate trainees on how to be better researchers to do, to take the knowledge that you know from, you know, your previous life into more application diversity-based approaches. Yeah, yes. And and that's, uh, it's very exciting because there, I think these activities that, I mean, I think all of us here, you and Janice as well, we do is, it has real impact, it has real value and it really will will change, you know, education and will change ultimately the the types of work that our trainees will do. So it's it's very exciting work. 
Agenda, when you use the word translational, that made me think of some of the clinical research that I know about and that long tail between, I guess that's uh, the long trajectory between the basic science discovery and then its eventual adoption in practice. I wonder for you and Sue, is there a similar lag when it comes to educational theory to actual, whether didactic or practical uh, instruction for health professions ed? How do we get these articles from the journal into the actual classrooms? Oh, yes. And, and there is also very, um, you, you may be familiar with the analogous translational model for educational research, where you know the education that we do, deliver to the trainees will have an impact on their learning setting, whether it's in the classroom or in their, whether it's in the observations that they do. And then that will gradually translate into the type of patient care that they do and, and the patient outcomes will improve. In other words, the excellent education that we provide to health professionals will ultimately translate into their clinical performance, to, to the patient care, and then to the public health setting. So there is that, that model. But of course, getting from the classroom teaching or a learning environment all the way down to public health is a long lag and takes many, many years to do. And so I think it requires a lot of planning. This model, though, it's it's a very familiar model that actually originates from teacher education, principal education in K-12. They also use a similar model in legal education when they train lawyers. And, and so it's a, I think it's a similar paradigm that, that we use across the professions uh, as well. But it also speaks to the, the challenges of demonstrating the impact of, of our work in a much more outcomes-oriented manner. Well, you, you jumped to the, the next question I had, but I want to make sure we're defining these two nodes of transmission. There is the articles published in the journals advancing theory, and how does that reach into the educators who are in the classrooms or, or clinical practica? And then, I guess, perhaps the, the more <laughs> directly important transmission is the one you're talking about from the classroom to ultimate interaction with patients and clients. So could you talk about those two points of transmission? Oh, yes. So I think, as I'm understanding, you're talking about, you know, translating the research that gets actually used in the, in the classroom or in the learning settings and how soon those occur. And I was actually surprised that in the health professions, the promptness that some things get translated into practice. I don't know, maybe because I come from the, originally come from the more theory or the or, or even the k-12 testing world where something that gets in a published literature it takes a very long time decades until it actually goes into a classroom setting maybe because the health professions are already versed in the, the academic literature but for example if there's a new clinical decision assessment tool that gets published in, in the journals somehow people find out about it they know that it's good they, they look for the evidence they bring it in and, and they use it. Or there are journals where, you know, like Meta Portal, where they would have these educational content and they would begin to use it. So what I've found to be useful is to, uh, because people have some experience, health professionals already have some experience in empirical science-driven literature, to point them to these resources where they can find educational tools that are not, not just uh, theory, but, but these are actual applicable tools where they can take and use in, in their classroom setting. These are innovations, for example. And then they, they would use it and then they will turn that around and they would, you know, if it's somebody that I'm working with, they'll turn that around and, and convert that into scholarship. So that's where I also find another joy. So it's not, it's not just a one-way translation, but it translates back, back to threefold, four, four, you know, so there's continuous quality improvement on the user, not only at a single site, but across multiple sites, and that helps continuously improve the field. 
And, and then well, what about the, I guess, the holy grail that so many of us look to, which is how do we know that any of this makes a difference in the future outside of the educational setting, particularly when there's so many variables at play? Once a learner leaves the training environment, they're in a different organizational setting, they have different colleagues, they, you know, the, the patient or client population will be different. So how do we trace the impact of any sort of specific educational intervention to something they do in the future in a different context? And that is so hard to do in, in education. And, and I think it's it's harder to do in, in the US setting where things are, there's so many like nuanced layers of not only just the layers of one organization, but regulatory layers to, to measure a direct effect um, when I compare these types of studies to other countries. So I think they, but, but I think, you know, it is possible. And I think it is, we have to begin with the foundational levels of translational impact and then grow, uh, gradually grow the, the scope. And this is, I think, where I, I lead to my uh, other point that I also want to share, which is around infrastructure. So infrastructure, I think, is, is also very key to doing educational scholarship, particularly if you wanted to do larger levels of studies, studies that demonstrate larger impact. And by infrastructure, I'm not only talking about, you know, for example, you know, the infrastructure for databases or the types of tools that you need to do um, analysis, but it's also the community that you can do to share this type of data. Because the other very challenging aspect of educational research is some of the projects are very localized and you want to do multi-site research. And so as we grow, and, and this is also comes from my personal experience, I would publish something from my own localized setting somebody else would read about it. And then we'd form a team of different schools or programs or settings, and we'll create an infrastructure to house all of those data across these different settings and to sh demonstrate that impact. And so I think it takes uh, some good planning, but it also takes good infrastructure and a community of scholars who are interested. And I think that's something that I've been very fortunate to join in Janice, uh, many of the initiatives that you're leading. <laughs> as well. So, so I, I think it, these are all very possible goals. I love that as a solution, especially, you know, you had pointed out that I know I definitely need more education on the innovative research measurement type methods that are innovative as it as they exist today that I might not know about. And I think having the infrastructure, because that that is my ultimate question is how do you how do you teach people some of, you know, if, if your goal is to marry these two fields, how do you teach them some of the innovations in statistics and research? And I think an infrastructure, having the expertise within the team somewhere or resources in, in the team and pairing them with content expertise, such a beautiful solution and, and simple solution, really. We just don't do it as much. So I love that you are saying that. But as you were talking about how lots of health professions, educators don't know some of the, the new methods or the new technologies, are you finding that even the journal reviewers need education on this? And if they were educated, that we could inject more of the innovations from research? Yes, I think this is a, a very... So it's, it's definitely a great question, and it's something that we always think about. And by we, I'm talking about the local community here in Mass General, but also the, the editorial boards or at the national meetings and, and so forth. It's a very well-recognized issue because there are new methodologies that are introduced in different settings, 
this is a field that embraces different methodologies, different frameworks. We, we don't necessarily are educated about these different frameworks in real time. And so how do the re reviewers, how does the editor recognize this innovation? So that's one thing. Another thing also is the when it gets to innovative ideas, we we're always, the editors and reviewers are fixed within our, our boxes of, well, you know, this work has to be rigorous. How much can we stretch and bend the rigor that we're used to, to introduce this new concept to the field, to get this work published. So if it's a completely new innovative idea, and sometimes, you know, you may not get, um, let me just give you like, you may not get the, the p-values that you want, for example, in, in, a, in a quantitative sense. And yet the idea is so innovative, it brings in a new perspective and framework. How does that, that kind of new creative idea land itself into a journal article? So that balancing those two are very heated debates that I have with, with colleagues and friends. Can you uh, talk about the ways that qualitative research has informed your perspective? Oh, yes. I, um, so to be honest, I, when I first started my training, of course, being in a, a purely quantitative uh, background, I knew very little about qualitative research. But as I joined the health professions education research, where many of the, the types of interactions that we deal with are at the individual level, you, you're not, and, and we're... Sometimes we don't have the sample sizes to, to deal with, to study and explore the bigger inferences. And so I began to appreciate qualitative research. I think it's so important. And I think we, we get much more powerful results when you understand qualitative research. I've now, I can't say that I'm an expert in qualitative research, but I've now led a few qualitative studies myself. And so now I know really, wow, the, the, the kind of inferences that you can get. So studies that you would never be able to do in qualitative settings you can do it qualitative. Of course, the assumptions are different. The questions might be slightly different. And so I think that particularly our trainees in the IHP program, if they can do all qualitative, quantitative, mixed, I mean, they'll be equipped with all of the tools that you'll need to advance their creative ideas. I wonder if I can start to synthesize some of what we've heard, uh, because I, I feel like we're getting a real x-ray into the, the field of health professions education. I credit uh, Yun Su for that perspective, because you've had these leadership roles in large national organizations, and you've also been embedded in university settings, as you mentioned, now a primarily a clinical research role. So what, one thing that I took that I think would be a value for anyone interested in health professions education was the maturation of the field. I really like what you said, how theories are now being born in the field as opposed to having to be imported elsewhere. And we're finding that sociology or other disciplines are coming to us to, to look for ideas. And that, I think, gives a sense of confidence and import to what we're doing. The, the other emphasis that you made that, that struck me was just how interdisciplinary health professions education is, which is obviously a strength because we can get at different types of questions, but it also leads to some complexity around deciding what is rigor, what is important. It seems very context dependent and very um, sort of based on the, the questions that you're, you're asking. And then the, the third, some of these are a bit arbitrary because there are so many points to pull out, but I feel like something I hadn't heard before was this idea of infrastructure. Particularly, we, we all are striving to measure greater impact and to convey the importance of our findings. And we're often doing it in a very small scale. So building up multi-sided projects, developing a community of scholars, and having that infrastructure 
uh, allows us to extend what we're doing and make a stronger claim for its importance. So tell me, does that were, were we good listeners? That's an excellent summary, Peter. Thank you so much. Thank A plus plus, Peter. Yes, definitely. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sweating here. We got a, a measurement scientist. I want to be sure I get it correct. Ian Sue, thank you so much for this. I've enjoyed our conversation. I love uh, everything that we talked about. You know that research is one of my passions. So it's like wonderful to talk with you about this all the time. So thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. We hope you come back and listen to our future podcasts with your host, Janice Palaganis, and Peter Kahn of the MGH Institute of Health Professions.